This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 204 of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Hands on Gloves, the all-in-one revolutionary bathing grooming gloves. Horsemanship Radio is part of the family of the Horse Radio Network, and today we have Dad on. We have Monty Roberts on trail riding. This will be fun. And we have an inventor and a horse gal, April Scheel, and she's developed a new product that I think you're all going to be interested in. This is Debbie Lauks, and you're listening to the Horsemanship Radio. Thanks for joining us. Horsemanship Radio airs on the 1st and the 15th of the month. And I have my producer, Jen, with me today, the hands-on gloves girl. Yay! I'm glad to be back. <laughs> I missed I missed a couple of episodes because we were busily moving our lives from mm. one locale to another. It's great to be back. I'm glad you're here. I'm so I always feel more secure when you're here. No, sorry, George, <laughs> don't listen to that. But but I know you know where all the buttons are, right? Oh. A little a little codependency there. It is. <laughs> terrible. Terrible, it's I know. Terrible. But we've been doing this a long time. What? Two, we have. I was looking. I was. 2013. I was fooling around with um with the production notes. When we make a little behind the scenes here, folks, when we record podcasts, we have a bit, sort of an outline of who's going to be on and what they're going to talk about and things like that. So we're a little bit organized. And each and every podcast that is on the horse radio network has its own unique formula format that's that works for the particular producers and hosts that do that show so when you've been doing the show since 2013 there are a lot of notes piled up (laughs) that's a lot of episodes 204 as we speak makes me tired yeah makes you tired (laughs) so and as the show has evolved and matured the notes grow with it. So I was I was in the back end of all this trying to get a little bit of it organized and since I wasn't here for the past two episodes I feel like I'm lost. <laughs> oh, you, oh you do. Oh no. I always feel like I'm lost. So I don't know how you feel. But yeah, but the technology keeps changing too. So you teach yes. me new tricks with these, yes. you know, these online document Yes, and it's containers that we yes. use. Yes. The, the containers. I like how you call that the container. It's the Tupperware for podcasters. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, do you remember the little burp? You got to burp it. Okay. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Yes. You used to have to burp your Tupperware. Oh, we're, yes. we're, we're aging ourselves. We, aren't we, we might be. Hopefully there's somebody else out there who remembers what that means. But I feel like I have to burp this thing every once in a while. Like, I don't know if I get it quite right. But anyway. Yes. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> and, and speaking of kind of old fashioned stuff and new fashion stuff, I think, you know, the one of the oldest fun things to do on a horse is trail riding. I mean, it can't, it can't get much older than that. Right. Right. <laughs> we rode from one place to another on a horse. And, um, and then when we brought him in, so that's going to be part of our story today. When the way we brought him in and we started to put walls around them and shoes on their feet and, you know, made them all domesticated. Like, um, we had the next problem, which was bedding and bedding is the other side of our equation today. So we're kind of going retro today, Jen. What do you think? That's interesting. We're we're going to be talking about solving issues that we have created with modern horsekeeping that involve bedding, and there are many, and problems that we have created through domestication in that we and our horses do not get to enjoy the 
writing in the the writing in nature experience. And we're yep. talking about both of those. Oh, yep. I like that. Cool. Good segue for you. All right. Good for you. Now. Yeah. Now, new segue. My turn. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Our, good. Our, good. Our title sponsor today. Hands yes. on gloves. Yes. Can I share a hands on glove story? What Scooter been up to? (laughs) (laughs) You knew who it was. Scooter, our hackney pony, who is a Florida native. Let me prerequisite that. He's lived his life in Florida. Yet, he honors his hackney pony (laughs) genetics with a coat that would make a grizzly bear proud. Is he? Is he all fluffy? He's a seriously fluffy pony in the (laughs) wintertime. Previous years, we would clip him several times a winter, or if, at the very least in the springtime, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we did not clip him this year. Things were crazy. We just left him go au natural. <laughs> so he's got the woolly bear caterpillar f- coat that needs to come out, and it wants to come out, let me tell you. <laughs> and I am so loving the hands-on gloves for so many reasons. First, there's one for each hand. Yes. Good point. So I can half my grooming time because I can use both hands at the same time. 100%. Number two, Scooter loves being brushed on both sides at the same time because he's little. He's only 12 hands. Uh, That's that's so cute. So you you can scrub both sides of the (laughs) pony at the same time. And when springtime is here and they're super itchy, they want nothing more than to be scratched vigorously from ears to hoof, right? So I can get on both sides of his neck and both sides of his belly and both sides of his withers at the same time. His little eyeballs roll back in the back of his head and his little lips go. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. And Hanson, those those little nubby things are so great on Hanson. They don't fall off. You know how these old ones cracked and... They they crack and and they don't fall off and the way they're dispersed that makes them effective, but when all you have to do is you groom... And then you take your hand and you kind of wave it around a little bit and the hair just falls out of them. I hate I having that. to beat the curry combs on the ground and use a hoof pick to get the hair out. Just it's more work flip. getting the hair out of the curry comb than yeah. getting it into the hurry comb. <laughs> That's true. There you go. So hands-on gloves. Where can people find hands-on gloves, Debbie? Oh, well, you know where I find them all the time is in my mailbox. <laughs> I, I order them and I get them shipped here. But yeah, go to handsongloves.com. The whole, just one thing, no dots, no nothing. Handsongloves.com. And also follow them on Facebook. They really have a neat little Facebook page too. It's a lot of fun. Great so, place to um, share grooming pictures. Yeah, it is. So enough about grooming horses. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit with our first guest about keeping your barn clean because that's important too. April Scheel, the creator of The Bedding Blocker, is a healthcare professional who works as a dual certified registered nurse and a paramedic in her home state of Pennsylvania. When she's not working at night shift, April works in animal, as an animal control officer and volunteers with several animal rescue groups. Along with her husband, Chris, she owns and manages a small boarding facility, which they designed from the ground up in 2016. Well, welcome, April Shiel. I'm so glad to have you on Horsemanship Radio. Where are you hailing from today? I am from the thriving metropolis of Zionsville, Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. People go through there all the time, right? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm glad. That's a real horse girl right there. But we've already introduced you as a healthcare professional. We know you're a registered nurse, very professional person. But 
the creator of the betting blocker is what we wanted to talk about today. What a clever girl. And we're always trying to figure out ways, you know, to pay for our horses. So I wanted to share you with everybody and uh, people can relate to you, I am sure. But I want you to tell us a little bit about your horsey background so we get to know you a little bit in, in, in the horse side. Sure. Yeah, it started out, and I'm going to make this the abridged version. Um, okay. When I was 11, <laughs> yeah, it's a long right. story. When I was 11, I wrote a letter to a farm down the street from my dad's house asking if I could come and pet the horses, which did not, didn't please my mother because she didn't want to do riding lessons or have me do anything with horses. And I developed a friendship with these people that had a small Arab farm, and they basically adopted me as their daughter, I told them I was going to have a horse farm someday, and they kind of laughed, and now here we are <clears throat> several years later, and I have my own little piece of heaven here in uh, Zionsville. <laughs> so, yeah, that's I, I did some time at a show farm, um, at an Arabian farm in New Jersey right after high school. It wasn't quite for me, so I went into healthcare full-time and just have horses as a fun hobby. Well, that's great. And you, you talked a, a guy into it, Chris, too, right? <laughs> Your husband? That's an exaggeration. I wouldn't say I talked him into <laughs> it. He was, he was just kind of along for the ride. But yeah, that's my husband. I've known him a little over 15 years. So he knew what he was getting into when he married me. <laughs> that's great. No, there's nothing like a good horse husband. But is he also a horse guy? Did he grow up with horses? No, no, not at all. He is somewhat afraid of them. Uh, we call him the maintenance man here because he'll fix uh, fence and he'll mow the lawn, but touching the horses and handling and cleaning stalls, not so much his gig. Uh, not so much his gig. Well, did he, was he involved in, in creating this bedding blocker we're going to talk about? He was. Uh, I need to give him a little more credit than I do, I guess. <laughs> okay. um, do you want to get into how I started it with my first first prototype yes. is that was really his idea oh okay, okay so yes. we we yeah we built a um we didn't build it we had a, a small it's a four stall barn built and my stalls lead right out to paddock which leads out to pasture so for the first year that we were here i was watching my horses just walk in and out and drag bedding out drag mud in and it was just this constant battle of oh how do i keep this in so we put a little two by four in the threshold there on the exterior threshold. And my horse, who's now 31, would always nick his legs and he'd get like, you know, bloody legs. It was awful. So we took those out. And he says, well, what if we put a push broom? We, we drill a push broom head into the threshold in the concrete. I said, that's a dumb idea. Let's try it. So we tried it and the push broom was somewhat effective but you know the bristles aren't really meant to last so you know every month or two we were replacing them to the point where it just got to be like why even bother and then um it was one of those days i walked out and i thought what if we invent something that would be more effective would last longer and would look nicer to put there i'm not a creative person i'm not an inventor it just kind of blossomed from that and i did some googling to see if there was anything on the market like it and there wasn't i ended up reaching out on facebook to see if anyone knew of a developer or somebody that could help me with this idea and sure enough there's a company basically in my backyard oh. that took my project on yeah it was it was it all happened very quickly but then it was like hurry up and wait brilliant idea I got the okay from the developer manufacturer to help me with it. And then I had to raise funds and then I had to wait. And then COVID hit, everything oh. shut down. And four years later, here we are. 
Oh, it was four years <laughs> ago. Okay, because you did launch yeah, four, last four years. summer, right? Yeah, we launched in August of last some uh, August of 2021 when we officially went online and started advertising it and getting it out to social media. So, yeah. So do you think, so you, you really are in your first iterations and I just love this and I hope you have it trademarked or something. I don't know how you, how you protect it, but it's such a great idea. And probably the protection is the fact that you've had to go through so many different versions of it to keep it in. But what intrigued me about it too is and we're, we're working in our facility and like good ideas, first of all, anyway, but also shavings is getting so hard to get to source first of all they're expensive they've gone up i don't know maybe ours might have gone up 15 20 percent in the last year and so I mean, this is like self-defense right yeah i've noticed the price of my shavings has gone up significantly too even in the last you know three or four months you know a dollar to a bag is it, it adds up so the more you know the more i can save in my barn then the more i know people are going to save in theirs as well mm-hmm. yes and do you so tell me about the reduction of loss on this too because that's one of the things that I was looking at because we have we have some walkouts that are um, up against wood chips on the outside and shavings on the inside and so pretty soon it's a lot of wood chips mixed with a lot of shavings because they you know mix them right and oh, yeah. I imagine that yeah. happens with any kind of walkout or even hallways you know uh, you know our our muckers are not always uh, the best to put them back in the <laughs> stall. Sometimes they end up in the, you know, in the wagon. So, yeah, is did you have you tracked how much you're sha- you're saving by not having them knocked out of the stall? No, I have not, and here's why. I have my barn is three horses on one side, two on the other. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to do an actual study with a control group, a con- control group, to say, okay, well, this stall was this much lost. This stall. Yeah. was not because I had the bedding blocker. As much as I want to say, oh, yeah, I saved 77%, I can't say that in good conscience because I have not been able to do a comparison. Honestly, I will tell you, when I was yeah, when I was doing my prototypes, I had one stall without one and one stall with, and okay. immediately you could see the, the huge difference in kicking the shavings out. Nothing's okay. going to be 100%. You're not going to get 100% blockage with these, but it is a significant reduction in how much is dragged out. And that's regardless if it's on an exterior threshold or interior. I have customers that have them on their interior to keep the aisles a little cleaner. And I have ones that have them on the exterior to keep, you know, the the mud from being dragged in and the bedding from being dragged out. Nice. Yeah, that's exactly. And we've got (laughs) both situations. I want to be your control place. Mm. I I want to do a science trial here with you uh, because I I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, let's do it because we've got the walkouts. We've got the the traditional stall and we also have um, some non-traditional covered areas going out into trails. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of considering all of that. And you and I have talked a little bit about sizing it. And I know, you know, I, I, I don't want you to start custom making now that you've just started your making, but I am <laughs> curious about that. So, and one of the other things that intrigued me too, is that you said you repurpose them too. When do you repurpose them? Like, is there a wear and tear length of time that you've seen experienced? Well, I have one that I pulled out from my very first prototype, and it's a slightly different size brush component, but I have, it's a scratching post, yeah. basically. So I took my 
my entire system. I just drilled it into the side. So my horses have a nice long scratching post with bristles. That's one way we repurpose them. The other way that we found is a bird landing deterrent. Yeah. So on above each of my, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I found this out by mistake. That's how most great things are found out. Right. right. <laughs> I uh, was watching, I was watching these birds perch right over, of course, my horse's water bucket and oh. they, you know, do their business over the bucket. So I thought, you know, when I have a little piece of, of a bedding blocker that I had cut to fit because you can cut the, all the components of it. You can cut them to fit your threshold. So I took that little piece. It was about four inches long and I put it above his water bucket on the rafter. Birds don't land there. Yay. Problem solved. <laughs> so that's one way you can repurpose them. And the, the brushes do last a long time. We've been selling since August and I have not had any orders for replacement brushes yet. I have had to replace mine because they're four years old. Mm-hmm. But when you do have to replace them, that's what we recommend. You know what? Don't just throw them away. They're still useful as bird landing deterrents. They're still useful as scratching posts. And I'm sure someone along the way will say, oh, I also use it for this. You know, for different different yeah, um, course, features. You know. So, you know, you know, less wasteful. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that's us, right? Horse people, we use everything, but so <laughs> we try mm-hmm. to anyway. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm curious too about. So you said push broom, and we're imagining in our minds now maybe three inches across and maybe thirty six inches wide, depending on the push broom. But it's narrower than that, right? It's more um, like um, yeah, like a hairstyle up there or something. <laughs> um, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. What we found with the push broom versus the brush is if it's too wide, too much bedding gets stuck in it. So we uh, had to go a little higher up. We So we settled on, after many prototypes, six inches of height for the brush. We found that it doesn't cause a trip hazard at that height. It prevents the bedding from leaving the stall and it, it doesn't get as much bedding in the bristles themselves. And when it's too wide, it was just, it was too much of a mess to clean them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Why? Yeah, another problem to have actually. And and six mm-hmm. inches is that because visually our horses look down and will sort of pick their feet up a little bit more than if yeah if it was just a comb down there. Yeah, the, the six inches is really just something we settled on. I I have no ex- exciting data for that other than. Four okay. inches wasn't high enough, and eight inches was too high. There you go. Okay, that so that's, makes yeah, yeah. That was it. It was very a scientific adventure. <laughs> yeah. Now tell me about your horses. Do they do do they have different personalities? Do different things with them? Do they look at them funny at first? Is there any you know like getting used to them when they first get them? <laughs> we we have a mini donkey here at the farm, and when he first saw them, he would jump over them. Oh yeah. <laughs> my horse just, yeah, it was adorable. My horse just kind of looks at it and was like, okay, I'll just step over this. Most of them, they look at it for half a second. Some of them will try to eat it and realize it's not food. Oh. Some of them will step on it. And I have, I have one mare that just looks at me and goes, you mean like this? And puts ah. his foot on it and just sits, just lets it sit there. Like, okay, I have some pictures of that. And the cool thing is they bounce right back. So if they step on them or they walk on them or paw at them, they, they bounce right back. So yeah, our, our horses are, kind of a mixed group here. The, yeah. the mini donkey jumping over that, though, that was, that was cute to watch. <laughs> is he still? Cause they usually, they're pretty smart. Don't they? He does not. No, he's, he doesn't care. He just walks right through it or over it. <laughs> he's fine now. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Do they come in different colors or any options like that, that we have to know about? 
Not yet. I am actually talking to one of my suppliers about doing different color brushes. And it is possible. I can have basically any color I want. It's just deciding on which one people would want the most. Mm -hmm. So right now we just have black. I was debating on gray, maybe a red, like a brick color. But I really don't know what I want to do with that as far as colors yet. But yes, it is definitely a consideration. Okay. So for people who are curious, how do they get a hold of you and um, how do they, where, where, where they find you? We are all over social media at Betting Blocker, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter is Betting Blocker. You can also check out the website at bettingblocker.com. Right. And uh, or any phone you numbers, can, are there phone numbers on there or anything? Yep. Yep. My okay. business line is 610-822-2562. My email is info at bettingblocker.com. You can also fill out a, uh, a contact request on the website directly. Whatever is easier for the customer. That's what I did. That's what I did and tracked you down. Yes. Yeah. Girlfriend <laughs> Nellie told me about you and uh, said, hey, this might be, you know, my whining, my high-pitched whining about the <laughs> the, the cost, I think, <laughs> of, of betting was driving me crazy. Plus, I just kind of like it neater a little bit with, with different materials on the outside from the inside and uh, hallways and, and blocking doorways, you know, the shavings just get so yeah. thick. And I'm trying to reduce shavings anyway. You know, we're putting in some different floor matting and different ideas to reduce that uh, air quality, frankly, you know, that, that shavings can do. So mm -hmm. if I can reduce the shavings from that and also create um, that, if I have that, that bit of a slick surface there, I'm thinking that they'll go outside and pee more, but this is just, I'll, I'll do a science trial <laughs> on that too. <laughs> but also just to have <laughs> enough shavings on there to, to um, have it absorb, but but if I can deter it from bouncing out the doors, I think I'll be better off anyway. So I love your product, and I'm so so happy to talk to you. And you're very um, descriptive and, and good, and I'd love to have you back. Would you come back? Oh, I would love to come back anytime. All right. We'll I like to that. talk. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, you're a good nurse, too, I bet. So thank you for taking care of us. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Hi, Debbie. I just had to write and tell you how much I'm enjoying Monty's podcast on Horsemanship Radio. You and Monty and your podcast guests are my company every evening while I'm feeding, cleaning, and finishing up barn chores for the day. I especially enjoyed the recent podcast 158 because so many of the guys that Monty talked about, and especially Greg Ward, were heroes of mine when I was growing up. It was really fun to be a fly on the wall listening to Monty recount all those stories. And I also enjoyed his discussion with Tanya Johnston about the deer and Thigmotaxis. Thanks for all the great information you and your dad are spreading throughout the world. And thanks for making the time doing my barn chores, no chore at all. All the best, Nan Meek. Monty Roberts, known as the man who listens to horses, has led an extraordinary life. He is an award-winning trainer of championships horses and a New York Times bestselling author. He's been a Hollywood stuntman and foster dad to 47 children, in addition to three of his own. I know this for a fact. And creator of the world-renowned and revolutionary equine training technique called Join Up. 
a gentle way to cause a horse to accept his first saddle and rider in about 30 minutes. Over 70 years ago, Monty discovered he could utilize the nonverbal communication that goes on between horses. This changed everything for him about working with horses. Well, welcome. We have Monty Roberts back. Hi, Dad. Hello. How are you doing? Good. I'm getting excited here at Flag Is Up because as we speak on this date, we're early in March yet, we are preparing a portion of the farm to be con- transformed, I think would be the word, from a 1D area that's beautifully, I don't know, natural and feeds the deer and is a pretty quiet area of the farm. It's going to be transformed into a a mountain trail experience and the deer can still be there. But, um, and so I wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about trail, why trail, what's the history of trail Mm -hmm. and Yeah. yeah. And, and, and how it engages so many different disciplines and horses in different ways. Yeah, that's, That'll be fun for me. I've had a thought I've only known for a couple of hours or so that I was going to do this, but, um, you know, my brain has just been ticking away because the more I think about it, the more interesting it becomes. And I certainly wouldn't be talking about this if it caused my precious deer to be disengaged from their property in any way, Um, and it doesn't. But I would like to take you back to 1941 when Pearl Harbor was bombed Mm. Um, and we were in the Second World War and the horse shows took on a very different uh, personality and that is that in 1941 I was only six years old but I was already showing horses for two years. I showed my first horse when I was four and the first horse I showed was in Western stock horse, if you can believe, cantering, stopping, spinning, backing up at the age of four. And um, what else happened at a horse show in those days? Not much else happened at a horse show in those days. Um, Through the 1930s, there were gated horses and there were jumpers and there were hunters, but um, the Western was Western equitation and Western pleasure, and a little bit of this thing called the trail horse. And a trail horse class was really not a trail horse class at all. It fit into coliseums and horse show rings, and it was a few obstacles that you went through, and the better the horse did it, the higher the score. After 1941, something really happened, and that meant that a lot of horse shows were canceled. And they moved slightly outward to ranches and farms and things. And natural horse trail classes began to occur. And I thought they were fun. So I had some horses that could do these things pretty well. And it became a kind of a popular thing to have these meadow or foothill trail Mm. classes. Not mountain trail classes, because then they couldn't happen unless you had mountains. So they had them in meadows and uh, foothills, mostly. And sometimes you had to go over a little jump, and sometimes you had to back through a narrow hallway, and things like that. But 
what was happening was that anybody could do it with any kind of saddle and any kind of uh, background of horsemanship at all. And the better you did it, the higher the score. All through until about 1946, when the American Horse Shows Association took over, and they started to base their contests on horse show rings and not meadows and foothills and things like that. But because the war had made us interested in the trail classes, they brought a trail class into the horse show rings. And as it went along, along comes the American Quarter Horse Association, where you had to ride a horse through a specific set of uh, set of obstacles, and those obstacles had to be the same right across this country, from New York to okay. San Diego or Los Angeles. Uh-huh. They had to be the same, and they were done with barrels, oil barrels, and, they, and poles, and gates. You had to open a gate and close the gate, go over the poles, and then you had to start a procedure. Of, it was called a Western Riding Class. Oh, okay. And that's, that, that's sort of silly. Western Riding Class. What is Western Riding Class? You're riding a Western saddle, but the Quarter Horse Association had it become a Western saddle class. And you rode over these poles after opening and closing the gate. And then you began a situation where you walked, trot, and cantered, and you changed leads on a uh, S-shaped um particular course that was outlined for you, the same in every town. And then you had to change on the straight. Bingity, bingity, bing, about four strides left lead. Bingity, bingity, bing, about four strides right lead. Mm. And you you had to go two straight lines changing leads. And um, I had never done that one because now, after the war, I was in the big time, man. I was in the cutting and ring cow horse, and I was show jumping, and I was riding gated horses. And it was, you know, the Western riding class was for ladies and gentlemen of a certain age, and they went very dim, in a very demure way through this already outlined course. And then it began to change. About in 1966 or 67, I heard about the mountain trail course, and they had these things connected with, oftentimes, these rides of a nature whereby you rode 20 miles and things like that, endurance things. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, they had a mountain trail course. And people of a certain mentality started to think up things to do with mountain trail courses, and these became very intricate. I mean, you had to go across swinging bridges, you had to back over things, you had to walk through water, you had to do all sorts of things, and they didn't stay the same. They started putting them in areas, not coliseums and horseshoe rings, but in areas that were more commensurate with the foothills or the mountains, in fact, uh, almost like mountain cliffs and stuff that they would build. And now Debbie, my daughter, who is on this line, <laughs> got interested in that. Why? Because there were a lot of people that wanted to do this. And the lady of a certain age and the gentleman of the certain age could get interested in this. And with 
a little um, effort, they could train their horse to do these crazy things as well as the, you know, consummate trainer could do. And that became exciting to a lot of people. And so the, the entries began to climb and climb and climb in numbers. And now all over the United States, the mountain trail courses are becoming very popular. And along comes my daughter and says, I want one in the infield of your racetrack. And um, they only cost a couple of hundred thousand dollars oh, to build <laughs> whatever. <laughs> they, are, they are very, very involved. And they do have different elevations. They have different requests that you make of a horse. And they are not consistent in that they are the exact same thing in Denver as they are in uh, Los Angeles or Dallas, Texas. They have variations. And some of these guys that have uh, started to make these are very intelligent people who've come up with the wildest ideas. And then you say, well, a horse can't even do that. And danged if they don't show up at 65 years of age and just, you know, ride like a pleasure rider would, but their horse has been trained by them to do these things, and they go very quietly, and they think their way through, oh, horses aren't that intelligent. Get a hold of yourself. The intelligence of these horses is just unbelievable, how they will settle down step by step and go through these things. It's very intriguing. And uh, for someone that won 11 world championships in these other events that are so popular and so important, looks in awe at the mountain trail classes. And uh, so you guys are going to have one right in my infield. Yeah, the whole thing is built. Well, they built the obstacles in Washington State uh, just because that's where all the wood is, apparently. But those were shipped down, and they're in the infield right now. But here's what we're bringing in. Logs and rocks and a, and a lake. And we have a liner and gravel and all these things. So we are literally bringing the mountain to the infield. But it's uh, I think the transformation that's pretty cool for the horses is that each element or each obstacle has its levels. And a good trainer is going to help that horse in hand, maybe. Maybe we start in hand for those transition horses that are two, three, four off the track. We're also going to have then the elementary uh, approach to the obstacle. Maybe it's um, a suspension bridge that you get your horse, hopefully, cause to want to cross the suspension bridge. But then there's the more advanced levels as your horse relaxes or as they train you to to understand the obstacles better. Then there is stop at the middle of the suspension bridge, do a 360 and keep on going or do a 180 and go back the other way. You know, there's different levels. Go off the side. Not sure about that one. But uh, there's there's these different levels. And that way, the competitions that we're going to have here, which will be really fun, will have the different levels, the different age groups, the different uh, variety of horses, the different saddles. I don't care what saddle they have. Do you? I don't care at all. And I saw videos of a, a guy that was, I'm sure, very uh, competent, ride halfway across the suspension bridge forward and then stop and reverse the horse 
over the same part of the extension bridge that he just traveled in a forward motion. Unbelievable. Nobody would believe that a horse could do that. But this horse did, and he would look back. You could see him looking back to place his foot in the right place. It's quite uh, extraordinary, really. What do you think makes the difference? Did he just find the most uh, unique unicorn horse out there, or did he train for that? And what do you think made the difference? Well, I think the guy made the difference, but I do think that he found a horse that was uh, up to that and um, had the kind of thinking mind that a horse would require to do it. Uh, just like any other event, really, you find the best horse, you win the most championships. But um, and, and this doesn't have to be competitive. It it really doesn't. It can be so much fun to just watch your horse learn and do these things um, just for your own pleasure, not necessarily a competitive thing. Right. What do you think about the in hand? Were they back in 1941 when they started? Did they did they imagine the in hand? No, never thought about it at all. The only thing they did in hand then was to single line lunge, which was destructive oh. to horses. <laughs> but and, on the trails, uh, though, were, were people out there walking the trails? Well, there's no question that I rode on trails in the mountains, the Sierras here in California, where people would get off and have their horse on about a 20 foot lead. And then they would go across a stream and then lead their horse across the stream from 20 feet away, and the horse would leap across the stream and then plow into the water, and they didn't want to ride the horse through that thing. So, But today, you would stop and maybe lead them over and then lead them again until they placed one foot down and pretty soon relaxed and walked across it, and then you could get on and ride them across. So it evolves into an educational process process whereby the horse understands what they're to do. And I tell you that the horses come a lot closer to what dogs can learn. Um, and you see some of these dogs in these, um, oh, obstacle things, mm-hmm. yeah, agility drills. That's what they do to think it through, you know, well, horses can come close to that. I didn't believe it until recently. And I saw videos of these horses really thinking through the mountain trail courses and it's it's quite extraordinary. Yeah. Our design yes, I agree. They, our designer's name is Mark Bolander and he is designing these courses around the nation although they're very rare still and uh, so people do come from a long way away to to be able to use them or compete on them whatever their their uh, interest is. But uh, there are no others in California which is pretty exciting that we finally get one here in horse country too. I think Mark has, uh, he's a great combination of engineer. He does own a building company, a contracting company and a good, a horse person that came on later in life with horses. And he does now he even has a briar horse. His horse checkers will be here with us in June and Mark will come back into a clinic in June. So I'm excited about that, but I'm really excited about a train, the trainers and um, allowing people in this local area to come in and train under him. So they're qualified to to yeah. uh, use the trail and, and teach those too. What do you think makes a good tr- trail trainer? Well, I think anything um, that you train for uh, has about the same kind of person that becomes a great trainer. 
And that's the one that can cause the horse to want to do it and not force the horse to do it. Forcing the horse to do it is gone. Um, those people will lose, and the ones that cause the horse to want to are winning. And if you look at what's happening in the various uh, disciplines of our world, it's the horses that have followed uh, a lot of my concepts, um, show jumping people, oh, there's some, some of the biggest in the, in the world now, um, are saying violence isn't the answer. And just to force a horse to go across the mountain trail thing is wrong, and they won't learn as well. It's the guy that causes the horse, or, or lady, that causes the horse to want to do it. And that's the slowing down process and letting the horse think it through and then gain something for doing the thing. It's a, it's a process of education for my certified instructors, but once it happens, I mean, think about it. Uh, I went to Germany for a horse called Lomitas, who was going to be put down because he was trying to kill people and wouldn't go in the starting gate, and they couldn't race him anymore. And I worked with him 10 days, and he went in and won and became horse of the year and produced a horse of the year. And the three generations after him earned $50 million on the racetracks. And that was simply a way to take the old world of violence and force. That horse has to know who's boss. Take that all out of it and cause the horse to want to. Yeah, absolutely. And the and the observational skills that you have are surpassed uh, by no one. I don't think there's any there's any question about that. So if you are going to impart and and you know you are going to do this with your certified instructors too, impart some of the ways to look at a trail and the outcomes for them teaching trail. Um what would you say to the the certified instructor that says, but this horse will never cross water. He, you know, he's always been phobically afraid of water or this horse is, um, you know, afraid of where he puts his feet when it comes to rocks or I don't know, you know, what there's definitely phobias. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's horses, Debbie, that won't walk over a tarpaulin. Right. And yet (laughs) I went all over the world and I did the lake and stream demonstration. And the lake and stream is a very large tarpaulin in a round pin. So that leaves a moat around of about six or eight feet that the horse has to stay on because he won't put his foot on the tarpaulin. And then you have a little stream, and that's a rolled up tarpaulin, and it's only about six inches, and he starts to jump over it. And then gradually you open that up, and he jumps over it. And pretty soon it's 10 feet wide, and he can't jump over it. (laughs) So he puts his foot on it, and then it doesn't kill him. And in a 30-minute demonstration, 100% of the horses brought to me with that phobia were then following me without a lead on, following me across the lake in the middle with no uh, force whatsoever. And people would just sit with their mouths open. Right. Or cry. I've seen it. Or cry. (laughs) But you have to allow your core to diaphragmatically breathe so that they know you're not anxious, you're not fighting, you're not forcing them to do anything. You are watching carefully to what they learn and then rewarding them for the thing that they learn. It's so much fun to do it that way. Yeah. And, And, you know, pretty soon your body can't 
see it any other way. I suppose. I suppose that's what you're getting to as, or that's, I guess, the ethereal position you want to get to by by end of life is that being able to achieve that. The word I was thinking you were going to say, too, is incremental, because even though it's 30 minutes, you give that horse a chance to put a foot on, but then do you make him go across now he's touched it and he knows it doesn't kill him? Or do you back him off and say, that was great, but let's try that again? Yeah, the rub between the eyes standing him in the moat, and then turning him around and looking back at that little stream. And then you walk over the stream and be careful because he might jump it. But then he comes across and you rub him again and you go back and forth. And pretty soon he says, you know, if you can do it, I can do it. Mm -hmm. And he follows you. It's, It's absolutely. And then the joy of watching a horse learn instead of watching a horse do it because they're made to. Mm. The joy of that is just overwhelming. Watching them overcome that. Now, let's also add a pony horse or an anchor to the situation. What do you think? Well, yeah, now you're making it really easy because if you put an older horse in there that will walk over the tarpaulin and have him go in front, oh, it happens in no time at all. And they will... um, mold to another horse quicker than they'll mold to the human. But I never did that in, in my demonstrations. I did it myself. But one thing I do like for a head shy horse is I get on another horse that they are accustomed to and then bring them up and then move to their ears from the back of another horse. And nobody ever twisted their ears when they were sitting on another horse. So they let you do it right away. And then you gradually step off the horse or bring another person in and gradually you show them that you don't have to hurt them uh, when you go up and touch their ears. And I've, I've won some bets that you can't believe on that, that score. But um, anyway, it's, it's just so much fun. And at 87 years of age, I'm, I'm still having so much fun watching the horses learn instead of forcing the horses to learn. And when I see it with people, it's even more gratifying than seeing it with the horses because every person then does it with the next hundred horses or something. And yeah, yeah, and the the whirlwind broadens, you know. Yeah, love it. Well, I'm looking at this little bit of a drawing. It's not the final one, but there's things on this called Texas Two-Step and balance beam and teeter-totter and rolling bridge that's an exciting one and and um, swinging bridge suspension bridge Uh, there's a trestle bridge Uh, there's boxes there's not only that big pond that we talked about but there's also uh, water boxes to walk through cross logs cross bucks is another one where they're up and down and up and down Uh, rock scatters uh, step ups mazes Oh, my gosh, we have found many, many ways to train or, or torture, however you look at it. <laughs> yeah, and you have, to, you have to keep that word incremental very close uh, to you when you start these things. Because, for instance, the swinging bridge. Mm. I've watched him go across the bridge on a video uh, with, that was absolutely swinging like you can't believe and that horse was just let, waiting until it stopped and then take another step and then wait till it stops, take another step. And that didn't happen overnight. And right. it didn't happen without the bridge only moving a little bit at first 
and then a little more and a little more and a little more. Um, it's absolutely incredible what incremental training will do for you. And a lot of people who are traditional in their thoughts will say, well, I don't have time for all of that. So they'll take six months to get a horse to do it. And in six minutes, you might get the horse to do it when you do it incrementally. Exactly. And well, I hope people will take that to heart, go home and practice, and then come visit us and come see our huge mountain oh, trail sure. course. It'll be really fun. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for sharing a little history of trail and also uh, your training uh, via radio <laughs> of oh, tra trail right. obstacles. And I yeah. And I thank you for sharing not only the mountain trail land with us, but also with the deer. Yeah. And I have a group of students waiting for me to talk yep. to them right now. So I, I'll leave you, Debbie, but um, uh, invite everybody to come. Uh, the gate says visitors welcome. Mean it. Thank you. Whisper the language of the herd. Listen, you don't have to say a word. It's time for Jamie Jennings to fetch an email from Monty Roberts' inbox and share a morsel of Monty's wisdom in a little segment we like to call Ask Monty. Leave this world a better place in the, the magic in the language of the Dear Monty, I have a seven-year-old quarter horse gelding that is a cribber. What should I do to get him to stop this? And second, will the other horses in my barn learn this bad habit from him? Monty's answer. Cribbing or crib biting is also called wind sucking and a few other colloquial names. It is a habit generally thought to be motivated by boredom. I've never seen a Mustang in the wild cribbing. Many of the old books will classify cribbing as a stable vice. This seems to be valid since it generally occurs where horses are kept in small confined spaces. A cure for cribbing has been sought for many, many decades. There are stories about trainers who use rather harsh techniques in an attempt to correct the habit of cribbing through training. I have never heard of the discovery of a successful system of training any horse not to crib. I believe that once the habit begins... It is with the horse for life. In recent years, certain veterinary colleges have studied and perfected a surgical technique that has been effective in about 85% of the cases treated. I've personally seen many horses that were corrected through this surgery and found that they were unable to collapse the pharynx and gulp air into the stomach. The University of Kentucky did an experiment in the 1960s and 1970s on whether or not one horse could learn to crib from one another. As I recall, their findings suggest that there is some learned habituation from one horse to another. For more of these insights into good horsemanship, go to MontyRoberts.com and click on the words Ask Monty at the bottom of the page. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Where in the world is Monty Roberts? Monty is looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged, in April. April, right away, we have the April 4th through 8th, the introductory exams. And then April 9th, we have a Horsemanship 101. And then April 22 through 24, we have Horse Sense and Healing for our veterans with post-traumatic stress and first responders as well. Then April 25 through 29, we have the Gentling Wild Horses course. That's five days. And then in May, we have... May 2 through 13, we have our advanced exams where we bring our 
instructor Denise Heinlein over from Germany. And it's always so amazing to see all those people on campus. Can't sign up for that until you've done everything else before. So get started on that intro course if you want to be certified. And then in May 16 through, Ju through June 3, we have the advanced course. And that's what I want all of you to focus on if you want to become certified. And then in June, we have the 17th through the 19th is the movement. And this is going to be so much fun. It's our fifth anniversary. The first two days of that, 17 and 18, are clinician format and uh, very intimate kind of VIP feeling to that. That's uh, Go to MontyRoberts.com and click on the tab that says the movement. And then on the third day, we have a special variation on that. That variation is that we'll have private sessions with amazing people and we've been announcing that all along so go on that website and look and see who's coming in june then june 20 through 21 so the two days after that the monday and tuesday june 20 through 21 we'll have a mountain trail clinic with mark bolander who is famous for building these mountain trails and we have built a new mountain trail on the infield of the flag is up farms racetrack we're real excited about it actually as we speak i'm all dusty from coming in from the infield <laughs> where we're building it right now as we speak. I hope they're all okay down there. <laughs> there we go. So this begs the question, the mountain trail course that is going into the infield of the training track at Flag is Up Farms. I'm so excited. Yay. <laughs> for the clinic, is the clinic going to be open for people to bring their own horses? Yes. Yeah, I'm glad you asked about the clinic because we haven't talked much about that. We've talked so much about the train the trainers we have going on this Saturday uh, in March. But um, since you're listening to this, um, maybe in April or May, you might still be able to get into this. It, June 20 is uh, he does he starts the clinic the first day with in hand. So if you want to bring your own horse great um, but he starts everybody in hand and then we also have transition horses here which are off the track thoroughbreds or other horses that we've brought from adoption centers through the right horse initiative and that means we're just chilling them out and retraining on them and those horses are available for in hand as well not the riding probably because that would be a hard suit but if so if you needed a horse you can use them in hand that way and it's good for the, our, our transition horses too the 21st he'll so he will have assessed you on the 20th and on the 21st then those people who brought their horse to ride maybe they even get a, on the first day i'm not sure but um on the second day for sure they'll be uh you know, under saddle and um, advancing depending on the level of the rider and horse. Cool. So check that out. If you, all of those dates, uh, further information on how each course works, what it covers, if there are prerequisites required, all of that can be found at montyroberts.com. Is that right? That's correct. Thanks. Dun, dun, dun. And for <laughs> information about today's show, you're going to go to horsemanshipradio.com where you're going to find links, photos, and more information about today's guests and topics. And as always, we love your feedback. Great place to give that to us is on social media. On Facebook, it's Monty Roberts, the one with the little blue check mark. On Twitter and Instagram, it's Monty underscore Roberts. Yes, he is in all those places. Many thanks to our sponsors today. Hands on gloves, the way to groom your hand, horse, in half the time because you can use both hands at the same time. <laughs> 
Right. <laughs> yes, you do. Yes. And Monty Roberts University. That has always been our reason for being. And the way we started this podcast was to let people know that Monty's concepts are out there and ready to be learned in little bite-sized pieces. We hope you get interested by going to MontyRobertsUniversity.com. And then you get so good with your horse, you want to be certified and come take horses here too, because we love meeting people from all over the world. So, be sure to visit the other great shows, too, on the Horse Radio Network at www.horseradionetwork.com. Until next time, have many happy horse hours. 